Hello, hello. It is good to be back. We have been on the road now for, what, six weeks? The last month and a half, we've been doing college campus tour events all over the country, and I mean all over the country. We went to Billings, Montana, to Rocky Mountain College. Um, We went just this last week, we went to Liberty University for their Freedom Uncensored Conference. It was a wild time, a good time. It is good to be back in the studio, good to be back um, in the show. And this this college campus tour has been very eye-opening. It's not only great to meet you guys in in on your stomping ground, on your campuses, um, in front of your liberal professors. I mean, we've had incidents where people are ripping down posters um, that are advertising my events in front of the students, the YAF students that are hanging them. Um, but it's been really, really interesting to hear your questions, to hear your experiences on campus, to know what's important to you. This is the, one of the biggest surprises to me in this entire tour, this college campus tour, has been how much young people, young men and young women on college campuses want a return to traditionalism. They want a return to reality. They want a return to this idea where everyone acknowledges what is right and what is wrong and we order our lives accordingly. And this surprises me because in pop culture, in Hollywood, on social media, we live in this era of moral relativism or so it seems. And it's very encouraging to see young men and women, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, who want to return to traditionalism because they know that that's the best way to live a fulfilled and prosperous life in our nation. And they want to be, they want, they want not just themselves to be successful, but everybody. So that's been really, really eye-opening. If anybody wants, anybody who is on a college campus, who knows someone on a college campus, whose child is on a college campus, if you want to bring me to your campus in the spring, we will be back on the road after the first of the year. Um, you can send an invite at yaf.org slash Liz. That's yaf.org slash Liz. We talk, we've talked about all kinds of different topics. We've talked about the COVID and the vaccine. We've talked about science. We've talked about feminism. We've talked about how the left harms women and children. Um, we've talked about transgenderism. We've talked about all these topics that people are yearning for reality to hear about. But on college campuses, you will not hear the truth. You will, in fact, be punished if you pursue reality in these, uh, at least in these spheres, spheres on these topics. So yaf.org slash Liz. I want to tell you just a little bit more about um, some of the other adventures we've been having on the road, and we will get to that in a second. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Okay, kind of a funny story for you about uh, an interaction I had with Seth Dillon, the CEO of the Babylon Bee. We're going to get to that in just a second. But first, I want to talk about AMAC. The Liz Wheeler Show is sponsored by AMAC. Did you know there's a conservative advocacy and benefits organization with more than 2 million members and counting? It's called AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has become one of the most impactful conservative organizations in America. Joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. With a full-time presence on Capitol Hill, AMAC is pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and replace your freedom with government controls. Stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Liz. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Liz. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. Join today at amac.us forward slash Liz. amac.us forward slash Liz. We're all looking for community. We're all looking for community that shares our principles. That is what you will find at amac.us forward slash Liz. 
So over the past two or three weeks, I have run into Seth Dillon. You, I'm sure you know who he is, the CEO of the Babylon Bee. He's just absolutely killing it with his satire. Um, I've run into him in maybe two or three different cities at two or three different events. And each time we have tried to get a picture together. Um, however, to my knowledge, I've looked on my phone, on the photo roll on my phone. Same with him. I don't think that we've managed to get a picture, even though we've actually been on a panel together. We have seen each other multiple times. We had dinner together. We have not been able to secure a photo. However, then I realized that this was now two and a half weeks ago. I actually did a long form interview with Seth Dillon. Fascinating. I asked him in this interview, he gets so many accolades for his hilarious jokes as he should, but I asked him a little bit more behind the scenes type of questions, such as, did you ever make a joke that you regretted making that turned out to be a bad joke? Take a listen. All right, with me now is the CEO of the Babylon Bee, Seth Dillon. Seth, we just did a panel together here at NatCon, but I snatched you away on the way to your lunch, so I do apologize for that. If you can hear my stomach grumbling <laughs> uh, on the microphone, I apologize. It's a little too close. It's like a, it's like an awkward third person part of our yeah, interview. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I want to talk about some of the things in a little more detail that we talked about in the panel. I want to talk about Facebook. I want to talk about fact checking. I want to talk about comedy in our politically correct culture. But first, I want to ask a question that's sort of a behind the scenes question at your company at the Babylon Bee. And I it, it basically just has to do with how sensitive our culture is. But have you personally or has anybody at your company on behalf of your company made a joke or published a headline that um, that you regret? Oh, good question. The way you phrased that, the, the, do we regret it? Yeah. Uh, I would say yes. There probably was one that we regret. We got. We actually got a lot of uh, a heat. We took heat for a joke that we made after this prominent kind of televangelist figure's death. Um, and it was a joke about, because she was one of these televangelists who preaches about like health and wealth and, and you prosperity know. Prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel mm. stuff. And, uh, and it was some joke about how like that message didn't save her or something. And it was just kind of really insensitive right on the heels of her death. And we took a lot of heat for that and kind of learned from it, I think, that it's like, you know, a lot of this is about timing. You know, you want to hit the right timing. and You don't want to be insensitive to a family that's mourning somebody, you know. So there was a clear point that our writers were trying to make with that uh, in a valid point, I think, um, but probably the wrong time. So, yeah, I'd say that one's probably a regret. I think most of the time that we get heat for our jokes, it's not something that we regret. In fact, you know, the fact that we're getting a lot of pushback means that we were really onto something. It means we were over the target. Um, so generally, I wouldn't say that we regret the ones that are controversial. But in that case, I'd say, yeah, there is one, at least one that we regret. So, and this is very interesting because on the on the panel, you were saying that um, someone asked you about what standards you use at your company. And your, mm. your, your answer was, well, there are no standards, but the way to be a good comedian is to A, be funny, but mm. then also to attack an idea. And if a person happens to be someone who's embracing that idea, then they might be caught up in that joke, but to not be it, yeah. personally malicious towards that person. And maybe this is an example of one that was going after the person primarily, even though the yeah. prosperity gospel is heretical by Christian. Yeah, we weren't targeting her as a person. It was really the ideas. It was really the ideas. It's just, it happened to, it was a very- It felt per personal to it people. It felt personal, especially because of the timing of it. It was very near her death. Um, so, you know, that that's the kind of thing where it's, it gets, you get into a gray area. You yeah. have to make a judgment call on yeah. that. But generally, yeah, I mean, the the, the per if the purpose is to go after the ideas, then we're not too worried about how the person might feel, especially if they're a public figure. You know, they are putting their ideas out there yes. publicly. And those uh, those ideas are subject to ridicule if they deserve it. So And they do in this, in Often this day they and do. age on both sides of the aisle. They Often do. Often they do. Um, no, I think, I think our viewers are interested in the behind the scenes because your headlines are funny. I mean, I follow you on Instagram and Twitter and 
I don't get on Facebook that often anymore, yeah, to be honest. Me either. Um, but they almost always make me laugh. We have I have a family group chat with all of my sisters and my brother and my nice. um, parents, and oftentimes, Text them back and forth. yeah, yeah, your memes show up in our in our mm-hmm. group chat. So um, we all love them. Talk to me a little bit about the censorship that you face. I face the same thing on Facebook. We get these fake fact checks um, from companies sponsored by Facebook. Right. Facebook acts like it's these neutral, independent, third-party fact checkers. Right. Um, but you're not a news organization. No, we're not. And jokes didn't used to have, like, imagine, okay, if you rewind before the social media era, imagine going to, like, a stand-up comedy show. And in the middle of, like, Jerry Seinfeld's joke, you know, he tells some joke about, I don't know, something that happened on the subway. And you stand up and say, that's not true, instead of laughing. Or just not laughing because you didn't think it was funny. You know, like, that would be ridiculous. Everybody would look at you like you were a weirdo because you just fact-checked a joke, right? It would actually be a stand-up comedian's, like, dream come true because that's the perfect heckler yes, to go after. it's great, right? Yeah, they look like a joke. And yes. that's, the, that's exactly the environment that we have now. Everyone's used to it now, and everyone's kind of just accustomed to this fact-checking stuff happening. But it really is absurd and silly that they're rating jokes false or true because jokes don't have a truth value. They don't have a truth value. Now, there may be truth to a joke, and that's why the joke is funny. But the claim that they say they're fact-checking, which is a satirical headline, is not, in fact, a claim. It's not a claim to be factual at all. So uh, it's, it's really silly. But there's a purpose for it. I mean, obviously, the purpose for it is they can't just take down a satire site they don't like. That would be a bad look. But they can just saddle you with all these fact checks that then derank you in their algorithms because you're an unreliable news source. And then they can just throttle your reach and choke you off from reaching your audience. So there's creative and conniving ways they can censor you without just simply saying, oh, you're not welcome here because we don't like your viewpoint. And I think that's happening a lot with the fact checking. It's happening a lot with the accusations of uh, you know, spreading hate speech under the guise of satire and stuff like that. So It's even, it's even sneakier too, because if you, if you read the fact checks, which I do, if you read the fact checks, they don't even claim that you are necessarily doing something wrong now because right. they don't want to be accused of going after you, whether it's me as a political commentator, you as a comedian. Right. They actually say people, meaning your audience, might misperceive what you're saying. So they actually put right. the onus on this, this faceless group of people that they're degrading by saying, well, you must be too stupid to understand yes, what yeah. is being said here. And it's, I, I don't know, have you, have you, what has your process been as a company? Have you talked to Facebook? What have they What have they said to you when you've reached out to them and appealed these ridiculous fact checks? Well, for one thing, let me make one point on that because when, when people believe satire, when they believe satire, that's an indictment of whoever you're satirizing, yes. not an indictment of satire. It means there's truth to the point that you're making, right? So if we tell a joke about Trump, like I mentioned this one on our panel about how Trump had said he, he had done more for Christianity than Jesus himself. <laughs> and that went viral. It went crazy viral. Now, why did it go viral? Because pe- people thought it was true. They really did. Now, a lot of people who follow our site shared it because they thought it was funny. It but, was funny. But a lot of other people, especially people on the left, it went viral on the left. There were New York Times reporters who were sharing that piece, thinking it was true. The reason they thought it was true is because it, 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 it tapped into the truth that is Trump has a big ego and he says outlandish things like that. So it's very believable. So that's really an indictment of Trump, not us. That that it's was not believable. even an indictment of the audience either, right. by the way. Because that's not. what Facebook does. It's Facebook not. actually, like they almost insult the people they put that it on see the audience. content. Yes. But it's not because They're the reason it. the audience believes it is because it's believable. It's believable. Based on the person. So reality is the problem. Reality <laughs> is the problem. Reality is too close to satire, not the other way around. So that gets reversed and flipped around all the time. But you're right. It's not the audience's fault. Um, we're not pulling one over on the audience. They like to say, Snopes used to fact check us and say that we had fooled our readers. Um, 
you know, to fool someone is to intentionally deceive them, right? That's the definition of to fool someone. Um, and that's not what's happening. We're trying to entertain people, make them laugh, make them think, whatever. Uh, and they're not really deceived. They're just, it is believable. Satire is believable. And the, and the history of satire is long and it's a rich one of people thinking it's real because good satire is in fact tethered to the truth very closely. If you divorce a joke from the truth so far that no one could possibly believe it was true, no one would think it was funny. Right. Um, so that's an important point. What was it about the company, oh, though, that yeah, you want yeah. to know about? Do you reach out to Facebook? Because I know, let me give you an example. Yeah. We reach out to Facebook, so we're demonetized probably like once a month, right? right? And we appeal the process, but it's an automated process. It's algorithmic. Right. And sometimes they overturn it, and then if it's overturned, maybe a week later we get demonetized again. And it's it's difficult to get an actual answer from Facebook. It's difficult to even get a hold of a real person, even right. when you are a creator that is making money for Facebook, not right. just making money yourself, but making money for them. They are a community, a network that relies on creators. They need right. advertising money. They need people to be making money, but you can't get a hold of them. What does your company do to combat this? Um, a couple things. So we don't have a lot of success reaching out to them directly either. I mean, we have contacts at Facebook who often ignore our emails, don't respond to them for extended periods of time. And if they do, they'll send us like a link to like the help desk that has an article about the issue that's not really about the issue. Um, We've tended to see the best response with by generating media attention. So when we have a situation where we've gotten flagged, like we did, we wrote a piece about how uh, Amy Coney Barrett was being compared to a duck to determine whether or not she was a witch, which is like a silly Monty Python joke. If yeah. you're familiar with the old Monty Python movies. And, uh, and that was deemed by Facebook, by their algorithms, to be hate speech, right? So we got dinged for that, and we had a violation on our page, and we were threatened with demonetization. So we appealed it. You know, we went through the automated process. We're right. talking about set an appeal. Facebook reviews it, and a person reviews it and upholds the ruling and oh says that this goodness. is, in fact, hate speech. So the nice thing you know, like, I'm talking to what Shannon Bream about it on Fox. against Wiccans or against ducks? I like, don't know. Like, what is this even supposed uh, to be? It was an incitement. No, it was, in, in, I'm sorry, incitement to violence. It was incitement to oh, violence. It was like we were Lord. calling for violence against Amy Coney Barrett or something. So uh, I, I was on Shannon Bream talking about it. You know, I made, I, I did a lot of interviews. Yeah. and drew attention to it, and the next thing you know, Facebook's reaching out to us saying, we're sorry we got this one wrong. So we found, and this is not the only time, there's been plenty of times where we've done that, where we will just go straight to the media and say, look what Facebook is doing, and then we get a response from Facebook. Um, but generally speaking, when we reach out to them directly, it's just crickets or they, you know, they're feeding us some lines and it's just not helpful. And I think the reason that this is really useful to talk about the behind the scenes stuff is because a lot of conservative creators are facing the same thing. And a lot of our audiences wonder what can be done to help if there's, you know, these big tech companies have such power over our heads. How do you as an individual fight back? Right. So, now, as an individual, it's different because an individual doesn't have the platform that we yes. have. Uh, well, that's why Carlson, we're the voice for the voiceless, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tucker Carlson doesn't want to talk to some random person. You know, like if you have a big brand, though, and you're well known and Facebook's coming after you, he might platform that and yeah. give that a voice. It's hard to give that voice to individuals. And it's happening to so many of them. No one knows about what they're dealing with. No one knows about the censorship that they're experiencing because there's no attention brought to that and they don't have that. So we benefit greatly from the fact that we have a very large audience who, who is, who, who's very supportive when these things happen. And also we get the media attention from a media that is interested in knowing what's going on with us on both yeah. sides. Like we get criticism from the left and support from the right. Um, so, you know, individuals really have it rough because they have no recourse. None. Right. Now, because of that, I try as a creator who has a similar platform, I try to be very cognizant of my responsibility and my duty to take action when there is action to be taken. Right. Because I know that I have a unique space where I can actually enact change, where a right. lot of times individuals in that situation couldn't do that. Have you ever had to take uh, legal action? We have not taken legal action. I think that there's been opportunities that we could have. That's yeah. That's what I consider to be the last 
recourse. I would like to go through their appeals process, right. make a fuss about it. And, you know, there, there certainly is a place for, for litigation, for legal action here. Facebook, as you know, is a very hard place to sue because of their terms of service. Yep. Um, they certainly favor themselves in their terms, which I guess if you're just talking in a business sense, I can't blame them for. Well, but the courts have favored them a lot too. Certainly, so, you well, know, the courts favor, uh, have favored social media. They've interpreted Section 230, for example, extremely broadly, extravagantly, as Justice Thomas would say, mm -hmm. um, so that these companies really have a lot of leeway to play with in terms of having their cake and eating it too. You know, acting like these neutral platforms that just host people's ideas, but then also acting like publishers who are discriminating against, you know, some content versus other. Yeah. And, and, and because of the way the courts have handled that, it does make it very difficult when there's precedent there for them to have so much leeway like that. Uh, for anybody to make any forward movement, you know, by by taking action against them, we've had success some with the media. You know, when the media maligns us or something, you know, sending a demand letter or something yeah, like that. Yeah, which is almost easier. I mean, you yeah. guys, what you got a retraction from the New York Times taking yeah. legal action. Congratulations yeah. on that, as you should. That was they deserved. called us a far right misinformation site that sometimes traffics in misinformation under the guise of satire. So, oh, that's a stretch even for the New yeah, York Times. Yeah. A real stretch. They must have had Nicole Hannah-Jones help with that one. They took she's, it back. She's pretty good at, <laughs> at reframing things. Um, okay, favorite joke that you've ever made? Ooh, tough one. Uh, all right, so going back to the prosperity thing, yes. we did one about Joel Osteen sailing oh. his yacht through the flooded streets of Houston following that hurricane. I think oh, it was Hurricane yeah. Harvey or something like that. Handing out copies of Your Best Life Now, his book. And that one brutal. went crazy viral because it was pretty brutal. Um, Didn't he refuse to host people in his, yes, in his so, center? Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So, you know, he was kind of the center of a lot of media attention and talk at the time. And so we took the opportunity to like poke at his theology a little bit yes. and how that theology doesn't preach to people who are in a flooded town. Um, and so, you know, that was really the goal. It wasn't to attack him personally. Again, it was to attack the theology, right? The idea that we're going after. That one went crazy viral. It was one of the first ones that got, like, media attention back in, like, 2017 when we were still new. Um, so that's a great one. But we've had other ones that just went super viral and were a lot of fun, like the motorcyclist who identifies as a bicyclist and sets world record. Got shared, like, six million times. Oh, my like goodness. That. The one that I, my, a recent favorite of mine, though, is that Trump who, when Trump said that he, uh, uh, he's done more for Christianity than Jesus himself. Um, that one went viral and it was rated false, but then it came true a couple months ago when he went on a radio show and said, I have in fact done more for religion and Christianity than any other person in history. He just said that a couple months do you ago. Think he saw, do you think he so, saw your, your satire maybe, first? Maybe, I mean, he does follow us, so maybe, <laughs> well, he did back when he had a Twitter anyway. Um, he might have seen it, but maybe we gave him the idea to say that, I don't know. Um, but I love it because, uh, how do you handle that? So now Snopes has to change the rating. Is it true now? I mean, they fact-checked it false. I don't know. But, um, you should whenever... ask them. You should reach out to them and ask them because, I, know. I mean, it's yeah. going to be funny regardless. Exactly. We should. <laughs> we should try to get an official statement from Snopes. Trump said this, so why'd you rate it false? Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, another one, uh, I mentioned this in our panel, but the one about how we, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court had overruled the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was so absurd that they fact-checked that. How you can can't you fact-check that? That's not even possible it's in the not physical even world. Possible. You can't overrule somebody's death, right? <laughs> um, unless they brought her back from the dead. Uh, which you is, think there'd be more headlines about it if that had you, actually You would happened. think so. You should be able to find that story somewhere. Yeah. The National Review called it um, like the most ridiculous fact-check in history or something like that. I think like that's that. accurate, And I yeah. think it's probably fair uh, because it was just such an absurd story. Although the washing machine story was was crazy too when we said that CNN had purchased an industrial-sized washing machine to spin the news in. That got the, These are some too. of the best of the best. So, yeah. So the fact that they are fact-checking these, those make them my favorites because we're like, 
print that out, put it on the wall that we got well, fact Well, it also means that you're making but... your ideological point too, right? Yeah, yeah. Because if it gets under their skin, then it means that they know that there's the truth, the grain of truth in yes. it. And yeah. people don't like being made fun of when they know they're wrong. They don't. They don't. And especially people in power like to maintain their power by suppressing people who criticize them. So, yeah. you know, you can tell who holds the power based on who you're not allowed to joke about, who you're not allowed to criticize. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say keep up doing the great work that you're doing. I know I enjoy it, so it's a, a selfish request. Yeah. Please keep up the headlines, <laughs> keep up the memes. As long as we can, as long as we still have a platform. And we'll do we'll do everything we can to make sure that that's the case. I will let you get to your lunch as long as you promise not to do what Dave Rubin did and eat a fish what sandwich. Oh, okay. Yeah, I want to eat a fish sandwich. No, please don't. That's I've got more interviews. I don't want to be blowing fish <laughs> into people's That's why faces. I didn't eat Chipotle before yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> Seth, thank you for being on the show. Thank I appreciate it. Thank you so it. much. Does a screenshot of that interview, at least if we're side by side, count as a photo? I don't know if it does or not, but we have a lot of great interviews, just like this interview with Seth Dillon at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. In fact, I want to uh, share what might be one of my favorites. These were probably two of my very, very favorite interviews that I've done over the past couple weeks. Um, and we're going to get to the second one in just a moment. But first, I want to talk to you about disco. I think it's pretty universal that if you are a man, you now know that you should be using some sort of skincare products on your face, but you're never sure exactly what to use. Don't you want to eliminate those bags under your eyes? Is your skin too dry? Does your partner want you to make some changes? Are you tired of razor burn? Are you unhappy with the way your skin looks and you're not quite sure how to go about addressing the issues? If any of this rings a bell, then you should try the skincare line my husband has been using recently. It's called Disco. Disco is a clean skincare brand based in Austin, Texas. All Disco products are created specifically for male skin issues like under eye bags, dark circles, acne, razor burn, oily skin, dry skin, wrinkles. And Disco products are easy to use. They're effective and they're affordable. They take the guesswork out of taking care of your skin. And that is what we're looking for, taking the guesswork out of your skincare. If you want to check out Disco and try their incredible skincare products for yourself, we have a special offer for the Liz Wheeler Show audience. Go to letsdisco.com and enter Liz at checkout for 30% off your first order. That's letsdisco.com with Liz for 30% off your first order. Thank you, Disco, for sponsoring our show. And thank you for giving men an opportunity to take care of their skin. As we know, we all ought to be doing. That's letsdisco.com with Liz. Okay, so I work often with Michael Knowles. As you know, um, we see each other again at all these conferences. We work on Verdict with Ted Cruz together. And I sat down with him to have a longer form debate about some of the nuances of liberty. I know it sounds like a very heady conversation, but it didn't feel like it when we were um, when we were discussing it. It went by in the blink of an eye. Um, without further ado, Michael Knowles. Hello again. With me today uh, is host of the Michael Knowles Show. He's also author of a fake book and a real book, to his credit. Which is which? Which is which? Well, you have to buy them to tell, right? <laughs> And he is co-host of the Verdict with Ted Cruz podcast. Michael, good to see you. Good to see you. Long time no see. It, it hasn't. I haven't time. seen you in Florida in quite some time. That's true. I haven't seen you in Florida. I saw you in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I saw you in Texas. Uh -huh, I saw Wisconsin. you in Wisconsin. Yeah. All within the last 10 days. Yes. That's a whirlwind. And we haven't been traveling together. No, that's the funny part is we've gone <laughs> in different places in between. But you've got precious cargo. See, for me, True. it's me. Occasionally, I bring a suitcase. Often, I do not. You, <laughs> you bring this, my sweet little future daughter-in-law. That's you know, true. Betrothed to your son. Yes. Born two days apart. Um, congratulations, by the way. It was so on, on verdict. Oh, thank you. I mean, I was honored to take part in the tour the last 10 days, the three on-the-road live verdict tours. This has been something that you have grown with Senator Ted Cruz for the past almost two years since the oh, impeachment wow. trial. You guys have done outstanding. You should be very proud of that. It, thank you very much. It is strange that we started Verdict in 
the first impeachment. You have to you have to yeah, specify the first and the second. And we started it and it was going to just go for impeachment. And I, I thought the show would do fine. I have to tell you, all due respect to Senator Cruz, I did not think that he would beat Joe Rogan on the podcast charts. And then it happened, you know, and we hit number one on the charts. And so we kept the thing going. I can't believe it's been two years now. It was really uh, pretty edifying to see that we went to Wisconsin and Texas and D.C., and very different crowds and very different, very different perspectives of these crowds. But they were all, what, almost 1,000 people in the room yeah. and, you know, 100,000 people watching live and a lot more since then. So it's been wonderful. And I, I think it shows you that people are interested in politics. They are interested in having a say in their government. They don't think that they're getting a say through the ordinary channels. And so they want to see a little bit behind the curtain and engage in these new media. Yeah. And this, this is what I give, I give credit to both you, because I think you bring this out in him and Senator Cruz for lift, for lifting that curtain, because politicians, as you know, are so political. They're so, they memorize their talking points. They don't want to be asked a question that's more than 30 seconds. They don't want to give a glimpse into their thought process or, you know, how the sausage is made basically. And Senator Ted Cruz is willing to do that. That's what he's doing at each and every one of these the show is sure, but the events even more so because it's live, it's talk, it's interacting with an audience. And, um, I, I, to be honest, I have been very surprised, pleasantly surprised. He's a very funny man. He's very funny. He is. And I didn't other, expect that to be honest. The other thing, I don't, I don't just want to flatter him or, right. But well, he, I just said, I didn't expect that. So I, did, I know that's compliment. true. You're not, you're not flattering. <laughs> but, but when you, when you mention that most politicians don't actually say anything, part of the reason they don't say anything, one is because they're cautious and they just want to get reelected. But part of it is that just the average IQ in Washington, D.C. is not particularly high. And I, I once asked a very well-known Democratic strategist, uh, I said, uh, what do you think uh, of, of these politicians, you know, who's, who've made your career? And he said, they're vacuous imbeciles, all of them. <laughs> and, true. And so, you know, mostly, you, mostly. no, it yeah. is. And so when you get someone like Cruz, and there are, there are other people too, I mean, there are, there are a handful of other politicians on the uh, scene, but there aren't many of them uh, who actually know something, know something about the law, know something about the constitution, know something about history, have some thoughts about philosophy and the way the government should work, have, have know anything beyond the talking points that some pollster hands them. It, it's so refreshing. And, and uh, so I, I do think it, that is part of the reason why the, the podcast has worked. And, uh, you know, that's part of the reason why we're here now at this national conservatism conference. Yeah. And one of the purposes of this conference is to break out of those dead talking points and to uh, cremate. To disagree. Yeah, to, well, I think we, we're, um, we're not killing the dead consensus because the dead consensus is already dead. We're cremating it. We're having a yes. funeral for the dead consensus and then moving on to something Throwing more the ashes into the wind. So one of my favorite moments that happened backstage during this tour, first, like I said, Wisconsin, then Houston, Texas A&M, then Catholic University, um, was the disagreements. You and Senator Cruz actually have very differing views on some very important topics. And, you know, when you're, when you're waiting backstage in the wings, when the introduction is going on stage, you kind of are naturally gearing up your mind to talk about these things. Right. And so you'll, you'll not, not practice, but you'll, you'll share a thought about what we're about to talk about. And Senator Cruz, you were about to disagree with something he was saying. And he literally says, save it for the state. Yep. Yeah. No, he wants to not, he doesn't even want a chance to prepare for the disagreement. He wants yeah. people to be able to see how it's broken down. I have a lot. I have an immense amount of respect for that. There, there was this great moment. I think it was the highlight of the tour at Catholic University. Yes. And a student comes up at Catholic and says, Senator Cruz, you talk about liberty a lot. 
could you define liberty? Because, and Mr. Knowles, could you define liberty too? Because I think you might disagree. And so the senator very graciously let me go first. And I gave this a definition of liberty, which is, uh, Lord Acton gave. And it's a, a Catholic definition of liberty, which is that liberty is not the right, it's not the ability to do whatever you want, but the right to do what you ought. Yeah. And uh, St. John Paul II reiterated this in recent years. And it's just, that's the Catholic definition, right? Now, the sort of libertarian or liberal definition of liberty is that liberty is just the ability to do whatever you want. And it gets a little confusing because our will is split. Meaning, you know, I, if I'm a drug addict, I want to do the drugs. But in a higher sense, I don't want to do the drugs, right? And so St. Paul says this. He says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And what does that mean? It's because we have appetite and we have a rational will. And the rational will mediates between the appetite and the divine will. And so that's why we educate ourselves and practice virtue. Okay. So then Senator Cruz says, yeah, that's a bunch of Catholic claptrap. But he said it in a very, he said it in a very nice way. But he did get a big laugh even from the Catholic audience. He did. He did. And it was, and, and he made this this great point where he said, I don't know if the difference is because I'm Protestant and you're Catholic, or, but, but I, I think liberty is, um, is not really necessarily ordered toward virtue, but it really is just the ability to do, do whatever you want to do. And this is a, a, an open debate right now. And I, what I thought was more impressive, even than the open disagreement, is the graciousness of a sitting United States senator. Of, this is a guy, of a presidential candidate and a very serious guy to allow his junior partner in this endeavor, in this podcast, to have this open and direct and serious a disagreement with him. I don't know any politician in the country who would tolerate that, right? I mean, I, this no. is why politician podcasts are so boring is because it's just, you know, the politician says something, usually some stupid thing, and then whoever else is on the screen says, oh, yes, how yes, wonderful yes, yes, and brilliant powers. and handsome of you. And, <laughs> and it's just the 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 graciousness of that is is really rare and impressive. And I even uh, got a chance to weigh in on yeah. this. And I was simply a guest on this tour. Yeah. I mean, my views on, you know, liberty versus license, I guess is like a hybrid of those two, because as a Catholic, of course, you know, I, I, my views align with yours that, you know, we're called to virtue. But when it comes to government regulating our ability to do something good or something bad, I do fall a little bit more towards the libertarian um, end of the spectrum simply because that's what God allowed of us as human beings to choose the wrong thing. We had to be able to choose to do the wrong thing in order to choose the right thing. Well, that's the idea of of free will, right? He gave us free will. He gave us the uh, the ability to choose the devil versus to choose him. Without which, we would just be animals with instinct, true. and our choice would mean nothing. No, that's true. You you certainly need free will. But then, and but the, the God also allows the civil authority to put restraints on these things, right? We He doesn't give us He doesn't say you have the right to commit a murder. You know, I will I will not allow the civil authority to prescribe proscribe murder. And so then it becomes this negotiation. I mean, are we what kind of what kind of uh, limits do we want to put on that kind of freedom? You know, so for right. most for most well, of America, the limits should obviously be if if you've infringed upon someone else's ability to you know, exercise those th same things, those, those choices, someone else's ability to um, just live out their individual liberties, right? Okay. If you're violating someone else's liberties, that's different than choosing. And I, I, well, I understand the argument, the argument that if you, um, if you make a bad moral choice, it has cascading effects and you yes. are essentially, you are essentially morally crippling someone else, not necessarily the person with which you, you know, if it's a sexual sin that you uh, did that yeah. with, <laughs> if you will. Who you been talking to? Who you, hold on here. Have you been, yes. um, I, I understand that, but a, I, I just think it's very risky for a government to get involved in the regulation of that because as soon as you have 
Um, any politician, the Democratic Party right now is a perfect example of this. They're redefining the very idea of right and wrong, good and bad, moral and immoral. And they're wielding that power. Yes. But, but and so if you give a government that power, then... But the government already has that power because the left is already doing it. So my, my question then is, what about drug laws? You know, let's say not forget about um, drunk driving laws, but just actual doing the drug or possessing the drug. That is not something that infringes on someone else's liberty in, in some very remote way, perhaps. But really, it's just about do you have the right to smoke the doobie or shoot the heroin or smoke the crack? And I th it seems to me the conservative answer and the answer that most people held in the country until very recently was no, you don't have that right. Even though it doesn't infringe on someone else's rights, you do not have the right to use your body in that way. Abuse it. Isn't this where our system of government in general has gotten very off track? Because to get very nerdy here, the federal government was supposed to be more libertarian, more hands off. And the state governments and the local governments yep. were the ones that had the ability to say, okay, morality, sure, let's let's regulate what what we want our yep. communities to be as long as we are not violating those inherent rights that are codified. Blue laws, right? And, I mean that, and protect, yep. protected in the constitution. And maybe maybe that maybe that's true because I, I understand the drug, the drug argument, the war on drugs. This is actually a very interesting conservative case study. When you ask people these days, well, what do you think of of the war on drugs? Should the federal government be involved here? You'll get people who don't know how to answer it because it their answers will be inconsistent. Even yep. my own. Yep. I've had to really critically think well, should the federal government be banning marijuana, even though all the science shows that marijuana is not only bad for the individual, it leads to mental health problems, it yeah. leads to which burdens our hospitals, it you know leads to violence, which harms other people. At the same time, you can't ban a behavior that simply makes someone have a propensity to do something bad. Can you not, though? I don't, I mean, you at know, the in, state level is what I would argue. At the federal level, no. At the federal level, I suppose it's harder, although the, what they would argue is interstate commerce because all the pot's coming over yeah. from Mexico and going through all the states that you can regulate it. But, you know... When you, I was just thinking about this for the uh, the topic, you know, the speech today, which was basically about all the things we should ban. And uh, <laughs> but I was I was looking at uh, sodomy laws in the United States. You know, the Supreme Court decided to upend sodomy laws. They found some anti-sodomy law provision in Invisible Ink in the Constitution. I don't know where they found it, but this was very recently that they did that. Before that, it was uh, it was considered perfectly within a state's right to to ban sodomy. Uh, maybe you don't want to. I mean, maybe there's no reason to do that. But at the at the time of the revolution, the punishment for sodomy in, in Virginia was death. Thomas Jefferson, our very liberal, broad-minded founding father, he lobbied to reduce that punishment to castration. That's pretty, pretty harsh, too. That's pretty brutal. And by, by the way, it was shut down. They said, no, that's too lenient. We're not going to do that. Uh, you know, when you look in the history of America, there were there was no established church at the federal level because there were established churches at the at state, the state level. level. There well, that, that, and I guess that's where my argument lies, that the federal government now is trying to take over what was intended for the states to do. And that does make it this contradiction then, because you you want some regulation, you don't want anarchy yeah. in, in society, but you don't want the federal bureaucrats to do it. So maybe it's a problem less with our definitions or differences of definition of liberty and more with who's applying Who this gets definition. to do it, yeah. And it's, yeah. by the way, this is a very Catholic idea. It's the Catholic idea of subsidiarity. Yes, the idea that you you do not want some overweening power to be trampling on on the rights and authority of smaller and more local communities. And this goes down all the way to the family, by the way, which is why it, it's no coincidence that what has the left been gunning for for decades and basically- Our sweet little babies. Our sweet little babies and our, and our families. Yeah. You know, the, the fund, this, this, I'd say, would be one of the really big disagreements between the kind of libertarian-ish view and the conservative view is what is the fundamental unit of society? The, the libertarian 
and I, I use that term loosely because like they don't the, even know the founding what they fathers, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it, everyone goes through a libertarian stage, so I say yes, that like yeah, tongue in cheek yeah. because even I at one point was like, "Don't tell me what to do unless I'm you know trying to kill somebody else." Other than that, stay off my lawn. Totally. No, we all do. Uh, high school was fun. College was fun. <laughs> but you know, the, the libertarian view might be that the individual is the basic unit. Yeah. But the conservative view is no, it's the family. Actually. Right. It's not and I think family. that's correct. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's certainly correct. And not just in my opinion, not just in my religious belief. That's, that's true when you look at the statistics, when you look at the, both the harm of the destruction of the family and the good when families encourage. Yeah. This is actually like, remember when gay marriage was codified into law? And right before that, when the argument was, should the government be recognizing marriage at all? Yeah. Because there was a strain of conservatives that were saying, listen, I'd rather the government yeah. not recognize marriages legally at all. Uh, versus recognizing what, you know, Christians believe is not actually marriage, right? right? And the argument from a lot of conservatives is the federal government recognizes um, man-woman marriage, traditional marriage, because the country needs children. And the yeah. best, most stable, obviously, right. unit for raising those children is a, a married mother and father. And, if, and if you believe that the family is the fundamental political unit, then to say that the the, the federal government has no role in marriage. It's like saying the federal government has no role in the states or in the counties. It's like saying if you're if the federal government's not going to recognize the fundamental political union, then why is it recognizing any of the other political units within the country? I mean, it's, it's well, just that was madness. that was the question. Why? What is the what is the interest of the U.S. government in recognizing yeah. you know male male female female unions? And I, I actually still think that question is up in the air. I think it is a political statement and not one that is in the interest of the national security or the general welfare of our country, because any person is perfectly free to, you know, love and commit to any other person. Why on earth do you need, you know, the government to pat your head? And I know that's, that's both a hybrid Catholic opinion and conservative opinion, but it, it, it plays into this idea that all of this stuff should be at the state level and not the federal level to begin with. The part of it, I mean, uh, Scalia brought up this point, which is if you've got one definition, if you've got marriage in normal states, and then you've got this this farce of marriage, this kind of caricature of marriage in the liberal states, then how is your nation going to work? You've now got such utter confusion over the, the most basic political unit. How are you going to function? What is that going to mean for adoption? What is that going to mean when you move? If someone gets married, quote unquote, in New York, and forget about two men or two women, let's say it's, let's take it to its logical conclusion and say it's two men, three women, and a goat. And, and they just call this union marriage, even though it's has no historical or philosophical uh, uh, grounding in marriage. Uh, what happens when you move to Utah? Utah is a good example. I mean, don't forget, Utah used to permit polygamy. Yeah. And that was stamped out. And it was a big political fight because the nation could not tolerate one state in the union having polygamy, having one radically different definition of marriage than all of the others. And so it was always going to come to a head. It's just, uh, it's very sad to me that this one romantic poet on the Supreme Court, Anthony Kennedy, decided that the right to, and this is what he said, the right to intimacy is guaranteed to us by the Constitution. And so, where? where? Well, it's in the invisible ink. Beneath sure. the emanations like, is that below the, the part that National Tre Treasure discovered on the back? You know, yeah. Scalia, this great dissent, he says, he goes, if the right to intimacy is granted in the Constitution, <laughs> I've never seen that anywhere, but if it is, uh, Surely marriage constricts rather than expands the right to intimacy. Ask the nearest hippie. I thought, what a beautiful descent. And what it, a beautiful mind. Yes. My yeah. goodness, I miss that man. Yeah. yeah. But oh it, my goodness. It exposed the nonsense of that, that argument, which is still, I mean, we're, we're seeing the cascading effects today. Now there is a move to legalize polygamy, as we yeah. all said there would be. Well, yeah, because they accuse us of uh, engaging in a slippery slope fallacy. But what I always say is, sure, when you're at the top of a slippery slope and you're sitting in a sled, 
you just might slide down it. That's 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 how it works. Especially that's now, we're basic like, physics. We're basically three quarters of the way down Kilimanjaro. They say, yeah, stop exactly. talking about the slippery slope. It's slippery. I'm almost down at the bottom. What yeah. are you talking about? Exactly. So going back to the war on drugs for a second, this is my most controversial political opinion. Are you ready for this? Yeah. I'm not actually sure that I've shared this with anybody other than my producers. I think um, because we have this, this incredible industry of trafficking, not we, but there exists an incredible yeah. industry of trafficking drugs without which our nation would not suffer the opioid deaths that we do, we don't even necessarily necessarily need to illegalize many of these drugs. We just need to cut off the supply. Mm. I think we should send in special forces into Mexico and wipe these cartels out and stop the supply. Yeah, sure. I, I think that's that's a great idea. That's for talking about turning the right wingery up to it like 11. But it's of course, <laughs> we, we it's, a, it's in the national security interest of the United States. Uh, these are narco terrorists. Yeah. And uh, the other thing to remember about the war on drugs, a lot of the libertarian types don't talk about this because they say, oh, they, they talk about all the terrible things that the war on drugs led. It led to Mass incarceration, which, you know, the last time I checked, putting criminals in prison is good. I, we have a lot of crime in America. I think we have an under-incarceration problem, but that's a Talk topic Talk about dialing day. the right witness yeah. up to 15. <laughs> but the thing people forget about the war on drugs, it worked. Between 1979 and 1999, you had a tw- more than 20% reduction in illegal drug use in the United States. It totally worked. And uh, so very often the more honest people who are arguing for the legalization of all sorts of drugs, they won't, they won't say the war on drugs failed from a, from achieving its goals. It did achieve its goals. They'll just say, well, it's just, it's wrong. Philosophically, it's drug dealers in prison. Here's why, here's why these topics that we're talking about, which are some of the untouchable topics, even among Republicans and conservatives, this is why they are untouchable because we have this idea um, that's been dubbed big tent Republicanism, where we want to invite more people into the party. I'm all for that. I think that's great. But the problem with that is that the people who invented or created Big Ten Republicanism um, want to change the principles in order to usher more people (laughs) into the party. Instead of saying, listen, we're listening to what you want, listening to the struggles that you are facing, and we are going to articulate why our policies best answer and serve you. That's what actual big tent Republicanism is. The (laughs) onus is on us as conservatives to invite other people who might not typically (laughs) be Republicans, not to, not to discard our principles in an effort to create a coalition of then what? There's this meme that I love and it's a meme of this, you know, crazy looking woman or kind of androgynous person saying, yeah, I'm an atheist, transgender, drug dealing, whatever, you know, all these kind of things. That's right. I'm a conservative, you know, and it's this idea that being a conservative, it doesn't imply any restrictions whatsoever, just so long as, I don't know, I guess you want to lower taxes or something, then you're a conservative. And, and that just isn't true that obviously politics is the art of inclusion. You need 50% plus one to win elections and make the laws and do anything. So you, you need it to be big enough to win elections, but you need it to be small enough to stand for something. Otherwise, otherwise you don't have a political movement at all. And so the people who are the most hardcore who say, you know, we can't budge on anything, uh, that's not going to work. And the people who say we need the big tent and if you're a post-birth abortionist, that's great. Come on in. You know, we want your votes. That's not going to work either. I mean, as as I thought conservatives understood, moderation is a virtue and we actually, we, we need to balance a lot of these things and, and then hopefully persuade people to move that middle, move that mod, moderate quote unquote position yeah. further in the conservative direction. And we need politicians who are willing to differentiate between their personal moral viewpoint and the law. 
meaning you and I actually, I think, knew this very well because we are such devout Catholics and because we are proud of our Catholicism and we speak out and we we share how it informs um, our entire life philosophy, let alone our political views, right? You And maybe you and I do this more than anybody else does. This is why, this is why I like the term uh, practicing Catholic. Yeah. Scalia used this too. He's uh, I mean, practicing you Catholic. Because, you know, I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm going to keep on practicing until I get it right. You know, which is, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, it requires a lot of practice. No, I'm, I'm, and I'm not trying to pat us on the back. I mean, we yeah. are sinners just like the rest, but there are so many politicians who are nervous or hesitant or scared to actually make, to take a moral stance. Like we were talking about marriage. It doesn't mean that, you know, that we are intolerant of people who choose to form unions that do not align with our Catholic view of marriage. Not at all. Yeah, we just burn them at the stake. <laughs> oh yeah, really funny, really funny. Um, Thomas Jefferson in his ear, I guess, right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the people he was lobbying against. Yeah. yeah. No, right, of course, you know, one can, um, I think, I do agree Catholics in particular uh, have a kind of vantage in this because Catholics in a way are kind of outsiders in America. Yes. There's this... this well, we always have been. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, it was founded by some of my ancestors were these radical Puritans who would, are rolling in their graves to think that, that uh, you know, one of their descendants is a Catholic. But... It's a it's a strange position because you'll notice all of, not all, but a great many, most of the big conservatives in recent years in American history have been Catholics. Buckley, Schlafly, uh, uh, Russell Kirk, uh, Brent Bozell. Biden. But these guys are, it, why are, why are they all these Catholics in a Protestant country? Well, you know, the Western civilization was formed by Catholicism. It's the only institution that has endured in the West from antiquity to modernity. And uh, there is a coherence to Catholic thought. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sound just too much like a rah-rah papist, but, but the idea but here... But you are. But I am. And the, the point is that there is a coherence to all of these things, that, that what is true on Sunday at church is also true on Tuesday yeah. at the voting booth and is also true on Thursday at the dining hall or, or wherever you're going to be. And so we can... I, I do think we have an ability to see uh, a little more clearly some of the contradictions in American politics and then, and then try to work to, uh, to move them yeah, a little bit more to into embrace the right both direction. The morality and, and, and that free will choice. This, this has been a great discussion. I, I for one appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you. This is the kind of conversation we have off the air anyway. So yes. it was uh, delightful to be able to share it with everyone. Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm very interested to hear uh, you, the viewer, what you think and uh, whose side you lean towards in this debate. So let me know on Locals, of course. I want to talk to you about public goods because this episode is brought to you today by Public Goods. Public Goods is the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. We're talking everything from coffee to toilet paper to shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful streamlined aesthetic. I think I mentioned the last time their soap container is black and white, so it matches my bathroom without me having to make an effort for it to match. It just goes right away. Public Goods also searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. They use a membership model too to keep costs low and to pass on savings to their customers. You can make your first purchase with no obligation. So join hundreds of thousands of others who have switched to their new everything store. Um, I worked out a really awesome deal for my listeners. You can receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they're giving you $15 off to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash Liz or use the code Liz at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Liz to receive $15 off your first order.
Now, the interviews that I did with Michael Knowles and with Seth Dillon, I think we can all agree were very entertaining because, you know, all kudos to these gentlemen um, for being entertaining themselves. But these interviews and more can be found on lizwheelershow.com slash locals. If you're not already a member of the Liz Wheeler Show community, we invite you, please come take part. There are tens of thousands of us. Um, there's exclusive content over there on a regular basis. We do lives, we do question and answer, we do discussions. It's a great place for like-minded people without any fear, any fear of big tech censorship. So Liz Wheeler show.com slash local. Thank you so much for watching today. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with some Thanksgiving thoughts, so be sure to tune in for that. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler and senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.